This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. There was a time in America when local courts could be called on to determine a person's race. And the stakes in these trials could be very high, involving a person's property and civil rights. In her new book, What Blood Won't Tell, A History of Race on Trial in America, our guests today, Ari L.I.J. Gross, unearthed the legal history of racial identity, examining the paradoxical and often circular relationship of race and the perceived capacity for citizenship in American society. Gross is John B. and Alice R. Sharp Professor of Law and History at the University of Southern California. Ariella Gross, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Pretty well. Are you up in L.A. right now? I am in L.A. Oh, very good. Now, you were down here at the university yesterday. Did we treat you right? Yes, I had a great time. (laughs) I talked to folks from uh, law and history and uh, criminology, a bunch of departments. It was fun. Oh, good. Very good. I'm glad to hear that. Now, you book yourself, just to start off on uh, What Blood Won't Tell, can you uh, describe race to me? Just give me a general uh, explanation so they can preface our uh, conversation here. Sure. You know, I, I call the book What Blood Won't Tell because I think we still have this idea, both that race is something in your blood, a fact of nature, um, and also uh, an idea that I think has been around a, a long time in American history, the idea that blood will tell, that, um, that race is uh, enough a part of our identity that it's something that reveals itself in the way that we um, behave and, uh, and how we live our lives. And, and that is an idea that came out very strongly in the history I tell. For my own working definition of what race is, I try to remind myself and my readers that race is an ideology. It's something created over time through historical circumstance, and that's what I'm trying to trace, is how that has happened, how we've participated in creating race over time. Now, what is the difference between race and ethnicity? Well, so to historicize that, the idea of ethnicity is something that really came about in the early 20th century, and I think it was in part a way for uh, European groups uh, uh, to explain um, what was different about them that was not a racial difference. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think of ethnicity, um, I know sociologists who will probably give you a, a precise definition of what they think it means today. I'm mostly interested in how do these notions come about historically, and I think of ethnicity as an artifact of the early 20th century when Italians and Irish and Jews um, wanted to say, well, yeah, we have a distinct identity, but it's not a racial difference. Um, it's ethnicity, and, uh, and so we're all, you know, there are many ethnicities to celebrate, um, <laughs> but we're all the same race. Okay, uh, I, I, I actually asked that question incorrectly. There is, because you said race is an ideology, so there's really no, there's no corollary, there's no comparison to be made here with ethnicity. So, eth- 
are, are, I guess what where you seem to be saying is is we're moving. We have always existed in a place where these things don't matter in a social setting, but they do matter because of what prejudice? How of a uh, how is it that race? Well, it doesn't matter in a scientific say, setting, no, that's what but I it matters say, in a social setting. Right, that's what I meant to say. It doesn't matter necessarily scientifically. It matters socially. In, in fact, I would say it's created socially, right? Yeah. It, doesn't, it didn't it, um, exist before we had a social, political, legal setting to create it. So by, my book is an effort to see through the lens of these trials the way law participates in creating race and racism through um, the, these are the moments where uh, people who lived sometimes for quite long periods of time in some kind of ambiguous or contested status has to it come, the conflict comes into a courtroom and it has to be settled mm-hmm. and it's, I think it's at those moments of, of drawing the line and defining someone's race that you often get to see what people think is at stake, what they think the identity means. And, uh, and it also is, can be a pretty final determination. Law has a kind of finality to it sometimes that fixes people's status for not just themselves, sometimes for generations, with very high stakes. So, um, so it's an effort to look at the way law participates in that. We're speaking with uh, Ariella J. Gross. The book is What Blood Won't Tell. And you were saying how law participates. That's your, your interest in this. Can you tell us how law participated in the, uh, the life of Alexina Morrison? So Alexina Morrison, is a, her case is the one I start the book with. She was a slave in Jefferson Parish, Louisiana. She ran away from her master in 1857, and she ran to her day, the a parish jail and actually convinced the jailer that she was white and that she deserved to be free. And he took her home with him. She lived, slept with his daughters, and he introduced her into white society, and she completely won over the town to such an extent that when her master came to you know, file his answer to her lawsuit at the courthouse, he said he was threatened by a mob. He was afraid he was going to be lynched. Um, she brings her a suit for freedom based on this whiteness claim and uh, is able to convince several juries, it goes through several trials, that, um, that she's a white woman. And it's based less on discussion of her ancestry, because he's got all the documents to prove that, than on her performance of white womanhood. Um, and... and what I think is interesting about the trials is that they turn less on fractions of blood, which is the way the laws are written, the statutes are written, and much more on a neighbor's testimony about how someone behaved, who they associated with. And if a man was involved, it often had to do with how they performed acts of citizenship, whether they sat on juries or voted. Um, but law in that way law becomes important in creating a kind of working definition for what it meant to be white, which is less about fractions of blood and more about performance. And what, what kind of uh, performances or, or mannerisms did uh, 
Alexina have that convinced the jury back then? So for, for Alexina Morris and for a woman, it was really about playing into the stereotype of the purity of white womanhood. So it was really important for her to show you know, that she had moral character, sexual purity, and then conversely, when the other side wanted to call that into question, they um, questioned her, uh, her sexual virtue, accused her jailer of fathering her child, um, you know, questioned her activities at public balls. Um, so, uh, so a lot of it was about that kind of honor for women, whereas for men it was about performing civic um, activities, voting, sitting on juries, mustering the militia, um, this kind of, you know, if <laughs> in order to claim rights and freedom, you had to show you were white, but to show you were white, you had to show you were able to and had performed these um, civic now, now, Alexina appeared to be white, didn't she not? Yeah, so Alexina was also, according to many of the witnesses, looked white. She was um, blonde. But that, didn't, but that didn't, you know, decide it for a lot of people because, as they said, you know, there were many slaves who, uh, who appeared white. Um, yeah. There was a lot of disagreement. And one of the striking things in these trials is the total disagreement that could going, you know, his hair was straight, his hair was curly, you know, where absolutely no one could agree on someone's appearance. So that was rarely a settling factor. Well, well what, in your description of Alexina, I'm struck by just the echoes to today that you, that you uh, hear often uh, when describing sort of the uh, traditional values, uh, and, and often you, these are ascribed to sort of this southern, um, to, to the south. And, and, and in politics, in, and in politics, and in just kind of the the traditions of the South, you hear about the virtue, you hear about these sort of performances, you hear about the the civic responsibility, and it's easy to see based on the description that you just uh, gave us how these civic responsibilities on the part of men could easily um, morph into uh, a vigilante kind of uh, protection of these of these values, which is what I think happened with the Ku Klux Klan and. And beyond, right? Absolutely. This, um, this, uh, and that's I think a, an example of how you see law and yeah. extra legal um, rituals kind of feeding into each other. Yeah, yeah, really. I'm just curious too. Did the the defense for Alexina? Did they ever uh, question what race was? Did they ever say, "Well, y- you can't base race on the fact that she." went to the right ball. Was there any attempt no, at that at all? No, it's interesting. You do see that later on. Um, no, not in these earlier trials. Mm-hmm. Um, later in the 19th century, um, some African Americans develop, try to push the argument, look how absurd this is. In fact, in the, in the famous Plessy versus Ferguson case before the Supreme Court, which was a, a test case uh, brought... Uh, to test um, the constitutionality of railroad segregation, um, the Plessy was acknowledged to be seven-eighths white. And he, uh, one of the claims he brought is, this is absurd to define me as a Negro. And, uh, and the, court, the Supreme Court doesn't take up that 
question at all. It says, you know, well, that's been settled in Louisiana law, or, or we're not, you know, not going to address that question. And they decide the case based on separate but equal and the 14th Amendment. But there is some effort. His lawyer, Albion Turget, was a, a prominent a radical Republican under Reconstruction, and, and he had an interest in trying to challenge this. But um, most people were quite aware that wasn't going anywhere. And in the early 20th century, when uh, non-white groups from, when immigrants from Asia especially from India and, uh, um, to some extent, some from Japan, but a lot of the cases involve um, people from India, bring uh, suits to get uh, naturalized to citizenship. And you have to show, until 1952, you had to show you were a free white person to be naturalized to citizenship. And they tried to argue as well, you know, look at the absurdity of racial classification. Some science books have 14 races and some have nine and there's no rhyme or reason to it. This is absurd. That didn't get them very far. That was a successful argument for Europeans, but it wasn't a successful argument for Asians because the courts would say, you're right, it's kind of crazy, 14, 9, 11, but we do know about five races. That's common sense black, white, brown, yellow, red, and we know you're yellow. Like, that was a sort of common sense, That's we know when we see it, that, that you see in Alexina's case, um, they say, we know African blood the way uh, an alligator knows a storm is coming. <laughs> and you see it again in the 20th century. We know, bottom line, we know someone from India is not white. So alligators know when a storm's coming. Exactly. <coughs> I had no idea. So uh, we're speaking with Ariel uh, J. Gross, and the book is What Blood Won't Tell. Now, I want to make sure I understand something that you said just a minute ago, and that is the Supreme Court refused to essentially get into the argument of what is race in Plessy versus Ferguson. Is that am I? Did I understand you said exactly? That? They so, they refused to to um, question. The, to get into the discussion of defining race. So, in other words, has the, and I'll ask you then as a follow-up: Has uh, the Supreme Court ever decided what race is? What ma- what defines a, a different racial? Um, there is no uh, direct. Um, so, you can get some hints of what the Supreme Court thinks race is when you look at contemporary race discrimination cases. Um, the, you know, my favorite cases <laughs> are mm-hmm. the ones where the court kind of recognizes, um, and, and I, the best one of these I actually think is a case from the 1980s where they were dealing with, it was a pair of cases about discrimination against um, Jews and Arabs, and they decide them together, and they said, look, um, there's no biological category here. We're talking about a social, political, historical formation. And when someone is being treated as a race, that's, uh, that's discrimination on the basis of race. And we don't need to make, uh, we don't want to be in the business of defining you're a race, you're not a race. The bottom line is, is 
racial discrimination happening here. Right. And clearly the targeting of these, in this case I think it was about targeting of a synagogue and a mosque, and you know, it was clearly racist activity happening. They had a right to bring a claim under this statute um, claiming discrimination on the basis of race. And you know, I think that's a very sensible way for courts to go, to, to go about it. Um, and, but that, I think, is not the way the Supreme Court has t- typically done it in the 20 years since, right. when there's much more of a, of a suggestion in, in their opinions that race is skin color and nothing else. Um, so it's an acknowledgment, look, there's nothing meaningful under the skin, but it's also a way of trivializing, you know, and just saying only skin color, so nothing to worry about anymore, and we can ignore a lot of discrimination claims if we don't see skin color operating here. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, um, well, a, a lot, I want to, because the book really is about uh, this sort of uh, people, Im, the Im, some of the immigrant experience here in America, and uh, voluntarily and, and not so voluntarily, uh, in, in terms of establishing themselves in our society based on their whiteness. And I want to get into a little bit into the experience of the Mexican-American in America and their struggle, if that's the right word to use, to just to define their whiteness within, this, within our society. Yeah, so the Mexican-American case is interesting because a minute ago I said if you were an immigrant to the United States, you had to... If you wanted to be a citizen, you had to prove you're a free white person. But Mexican-Americans had a a kind of loophole in that the treaty that ended the Mexican-American War automatically gave all Mexicans who were already here uh, citizenship. And and so federal courts continued to say, okay, Mexican-Americans automatically become citizens, and therefore... It's as though they're white. We think they're probably not really white, but we'll treat them as though they're white. Sort of honorary white. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But we know, of course, that in the places where there were large numbers of Mexican immigrants in Texas and California, they were not treated as white at all. They were excluded from public schools and juries and um, all kinds of public accommodations like swimming pools and restaurants. And uh, so there was a kind of Jim Crow as well. And what happened in the legal context is that they would bring a race discrimination suit um, saying, you know, we were excluded from the jury. And the courts would say, oh, no problem. <laughs> you know, you're white and the jury was all white. So you, you haven't been excluded. You've been represented. Um, and what would happen with schools is that they would say, oh, we didn't discriminate on the basis of race. We discriminate on the basis of language, culture, you know, customs. So, everything, so on. <laughs> everything that has come to define what, what you just described earlier in terms of the way the U.S. Supreme Court decided the, the, those, the cases of the, of the Jewish and the, and the Muslims. I mean, it's right. They so use that as the pretext. decision would be to say, yeah. "Oh, look, that is race discrimination." Yeah. But, but instead, the courts would say, "Oh, no, no, that's culture, language. That doesn't count. No, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that." But, well, I guess what we're you're, uh, these things have shifted all over the place. In, 
I, I guess one of the 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 the, uh, the things that you bring the book brings out is the sort of uh, moving target of what race yeah. is and what isn't. Mm-hmm. How does that moving target? Excuse me. How does that move into today? What's contemporary race? Yeah, yeah. One thing that struck me about the book is that my guess is, um, if a lot of people today. A lot of younger people were to be on trial in place of Alexina Morrison. Th- they might have been considered uh, black, just because of their uh, uh, their the way they react in society. And and I'm, I'm saying that as a, as a positive mm-hmm. uh, uh, that that we've commingled and things are getting better. Uh, do you read things that way? You know, I think that there's a. Obviously, there's been enormous positive change, and we just elected an African American president of the United States. Yes. So, um, so I certainly want to uh, acknowledge the the enormous shifts that have taken place. Um, the the my concern is, um, and and why I think it's important for us to recognize this history is I think we have a tendency to think, um, okay, once biological racism, once nobody believes anymore and, you know, just that race is in your blood, um, we're, we're, we're going to be okay. And the final chapters of the book that look at the way um, race discrimination start taking the form of cultural discrimination, as in the case of Mexican-Americans, um, discriminating against people on the basis of the way they perform their identity um, that I think still goes on, and uh, and I think there isn't enough recognition that that's still um, that's still a form of racism. When when we say you know we don't mind having people of all different skin colors, but we don't want certain kinds of performances if, as long as they perform the way we want them to. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, and so that's I think. What I'm trying to uh, to get at in the book is that we that those notions of racial performance, and in particular the connection between whiteness and citizenship, is still pretty strong. Yeah, yeah. Well, for so long it, it was it was uh, you could only vote if you were a, a propertied white male, and that went on for a hundred well, I don't know hundreds of years, but it certainly went on for well over a hundred years in the in the foundation of this country and. Um, we're not talking about Obama. I just want to. Yeah. What was your reaction the night he was uh, elected? You know, you, you've you've been writing this book, you, you've immersed yourself in the study of things related to uh, black culture and white culture and how they're bumping up against each other, and and then Barack Obama is elected president. Uh, w- what were your feelings at that moment? I mean, I think for me, as with so many, you know, as with the majority of people in this country, it was an enormously exciting. Night and uh, you know, and I have to say that if you'd asked me a year earlier, you know, was this going to happen? I would have said more. You know, I would have bet against. You know, I would have said uh-huh. I hope so, but it's hard to believe it can happen. Um, uh-huh. So I think it was, you know, a thrilling event. Um, what the just one thing I was going to say about the campaign. I think we've heard a lot about this means a new post-racial politics. Um, especially in the beginning of the campaign, we heard that, that it was going to be the end of race and politics. And I think if you look at the way the campaign went, it would be hard to say it was certainly a new chapter in the politics of race and a very hopeful one. 
but but I don't think it was the end of race. And I think if you looked at the campaign against Barack, the um, the suggestion that he was a Muslim and and palled around with terrorists, the, that's the contemporary way of putting someone outside of equating non-white and non-citizen and putting them outside the circle of you know people like us, people we feel comfortable with, and uh, and that. You know, in the in the figure of the Muslim alien, and the um, I think we still see that equation of whiteness and citizenship. And yeah. you know, in this case, it lost, but it was you know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, it's over. It was um, closer. It closer than it should have been. I I, I I was troubled by some of the more subtle remarks that were made. He's exotic. He's not one of us. It's sort of they, 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 they were they weren't as blatant as you know. He's got that Muslim name and and this and all these other things. And I frankly also think that uh, Barack is the perfect storm, if you will, in terms of changing the perceptions about race uh, in politics. In that he was half white, and very uh, so often that you know, that, that was, was his blood. That, right? was, that was I understand. <laughs> but I guess what I'm trying to say is that he was. He was a the sort of a, a the optimum vehicle for people to feel comfortable. I'm, I'm uncomfortable saying it this way, but for right. people to feel comfortable about voting for the first right. African well, it's American I for president. I think it's true that he um, that many uh, whites who would have been more uncomfortable with a very with a confrontational style of black politics um, were comfortable with Barack Obama and, and that he consciously adopts a very inclusive style and, yeah. and has a very inclusive politics. And, um, and, in that, and, he's, and he's quite centrist, which yeah. makes him electable. You know, uh, many black politicians are far to the left of, of Barack and, and uh, you know, American, the sort of the American spectrum. But um, I was struck, I have to say, people have mentioned to me, well, look at the way the campaign used his sort of family photographs of growing up with white folks and to make white people comfortable. And I have to say, I found that it could have gone exactly the other way, yeah. that, uh, you know, the picture of a white mother with a black child, mm-hmm. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that would have been an explosive photograph, yeah. you yeah. know. So I do think that that suggests some change. Yeah, I, I agree. And there's so much... You know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm. These are awkward words to use, but there is so much miscegenation going on within the country that that uh, just the whole the, the ethnic makeup of this country is is shifting so dramatically and so quickly. Although it's interesting because this is so uh, two points I I make in the book about about this. Um, one is um, that a lot of my the book tries to show we've had a lot of so-called, you know, race mixing, which was the term in the 19th century, there's been a lot more mixture in our earlier history than we've acknowledged. And it didn't mean the end of racial hierarchy or injustice. That is, you can have a lot of mixture and have that coexist with a hierarchy. It just often there are some intermediate groups in the hierarchy, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go away. And then the other thing is that today... We have a lot of intermarriage among whites and Asians, some among whites and Latinos and blacks and Latinos. We still have a very, very low rate of black-white intermarriage. 
and that kind of the marriage of his parents, of Obama's parents, was one of you know just the tiniest handful at the time, and even today they're very few. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, he is, I think he is, statistically unusual. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for being here on the show. Ariella Gross, the book is What Blood Won't Tell. Thank you so much for being here on Weekly Signal. Oh, it's a pleasure. To learn more about Weekly Signal's interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.